You have 100 messages. Welcome to the Voicemail Poems podcast for fall 2017, with your hosts, I.S. Jones and me, Logan Cure. As always, we'll highlight three outstanding poems, but first we have a new segment for you. So in our new segment, Poe Business, we will discuss news, so to speak, that's happening in poetry, as well as books that we're excited about, and maybe even craft talks that might be going on that we feel would be of interest to you. So this has been a really exceptional month for new books. Sam Sack has blessed the world finally with his first full length of poems, Madness. And I've been a longtime fan of Sam Sack's work, so to finally have a collection of his in my hand is exciting. Nicole Seeley also dropped her first full length collection of poems, Ordinary Beasts. I've probably read it twice over. I love it. It's gorgeous. I've read a lot of the poems in there already, but it's interesting seeing all of the poems kind of come together to create an entire body of work. And Sam Sachs and Nicole Seeley are going to come read at my job, Greenlight Bookstore, which I'm, of course, excited about. Yeah, that's going to be awesome. Yeah, I'm just over the moon about it. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I'm i pretty excited for Sadness Workshop. It's a chapbook that's going to come out from Button uh, by Stevie Edwards. And it's due out in January. I read her other full links. I have Good Grief and Humanly, um, and they're both beautiful. I'm super excited for the new one. She's an incredible reader too. She recently moved to my area, so I've gotten to see her read more. She's awesome. Cool. We can uh, move on to the main attraction, the poems. Yes, yeah. So the first one we're going to talk about is one of my favorites from this issue, A Poem for My Old Best Friend by Kimiko Hirota. Hi, this is Kimiko Hirota calling in from Stanford, California, and my poem's called a poem for my old best friend. The pink skies and dry air, the blue tongues and dark secrets, soften like chalk pastels on our fingertips. Remember picking up pine cones, discovering the city by bike, surprised by anything we could dig and bury. 9 p.m. is fading. The steepest sand hill is still sinking, and your hair isn't short anymore. My teeth are straight, and my tires are flat, and your dog has been dead for years. So we move on, thinking we're clever, swimming against the tide toward our new fears. We drive down one way, in opposite direction, Remembering our swing set when Country Taylor Swift plays. We used to want each other's happy stories, the way adults like sob stories to donate to and feel better about themselves. We used to hold up the moon with our feet, peace signs high, popcorn stuck in our gums, now photographs filled with dust at the back of our drawers. I'm beginning to sleep before midnight, 
with the playroom black, the doors closed, the dolls lay close, but not touching. Um, so one of the things I thought was so interesting about this poem is it has sort of surprising indications of time moving. Yeah, I noticed that a lot too. They were very subtle, but I appreciate the subtlety felt very organic. My teeth are straight and my tires are flat and your dog has been dead for years. There's also another line about how um, the main, the, uh, the object's hair has grown a lot since. 9 p.m. is fading, the steepest sand hill is still sinking, and your hair isn't short anymore. Yeah, such an interesting like way to mark time with images. Like we have the sense that, that so much time has passed. That this is that this voice is like very nostalgic, reminiscent, but we're not given like concrete things that you, you would usually associate with time. And I like that. I like to be surprised in a poem. I think that's sort of part of the the poem's job is to sort of be illuminating, surprising. I think also what I liked about this poem. Always, yeah, I liked and what I was still trying to negotiate with the poem is that if the poem is a friendship love poem or if it's a poem more so about longing and displacement and the way in which memory um, moves us to and f- moves us in and out of time, the tone of the poem feels so it feels somber and we move in and out of these disjointed memories. And especially even the form is really big on that. The poem moves in a kind of successful log of enjambment using specific markers to delineate time. I'm so moved by this line, even though I don't know if I completely understand it. I'm beginning to sleep before midnight. Because we, we've, been, we've been in the past for so long and now we're kind of thrown forward into the present. I'm beginning to sleep. Do you think it suggests that the, that the speaker is, is still in the house where they grew up? I'm thinking so because it never, it never, I never really get any indication that that has changed, especially with the line with the playroom black, the door closed. It feels as though the speaker has never left the the room or never left that space that the speaker and the object once shared together. And it's also kind of interesting how, despite the fact that the speaker seemingly is attempting to move on to the present, they're still, for all intent and purpose, stuck in the past. And it made me rethink notion about if the poem is a love poem but it seems to be the poet the sorry rather the speaker is trying to reconcile with the past or trying to maybe understand who they thought they were back then and who they are now by way of this lost friendship and I think that final image is like the final image is what clinched this poem for me like when I was going through everything um and it that the dolls lay close but not touching. I thought it was so beautiful. Um, and so, you know, you really want to go for it in an ending. You want to make an ending something that, you know, sticks with you, that really speaks to, like, what the rest of the poem is accomplishing. And I think this this poet did a great job with that image. That sense of, like, lost intimacy. Dolls as sort of representations of, of bodies, of identities. It's really beautiful. So you can find more from this poet on Twitter at Kamiko High. And now this poem that I just love two pieces. I love you, Rite Aid, by Austin Beaton. My name is Austin Beaton, and I'm calling from San Luis Obispo, California. And this is I Love You, Rite Aid. And it's not only the dollar aisle 
or because you gave birth control to a couple ex-girlfriends or how you fed me Lexapro, a pill Kanye West rapped about in a studio probably not far from a Rite Aid in Los Angeles. Not just that five bucks buys me and a millionaire the same serotonin droplets spreading under the part of the scalp soft on a baby, a chemical that tells me I'm me returning like a rabbit angel with the cartoon halo floating back into near corpse Bugs Bunny so he can keep eating carrots and talk like he's from New York and I can enjoy the smell of gasoline, the beauty of an extra paperclip given by a colleague or find beach rocks and agates shaped like Nebraska. It's not only the reliability of my favorite cashier, the ketchup red vest, like the fun ant at Christmas, or the palm tree parking lot, the oranges glowing out the black branches, magneting the light from your Pluto blue sign like something that happened between a moon and a star. It isn't primarily the ice cream I never eat, but glad is there for others like Christianity and Botox, or the bananas I don't buy because I'm not sure I always want to be good to myself, but would give it all away for a little familiarity. I could move to a new state, lose my mind or lover, then visit any of the 4,600 drugstores and the heels spin on the driveway back home from the mailbox, and anybody American boogieing down aisle six under bars of fluorescent, the industrial hum and same anxiety a pharmacy can soften Rite Aid, I love you, and a stranger also with your store membership is asking, what am I shopping for today? Who misses me? How much does it matter when I don't trust myself? So I love love poems that are whimsical and playful and daring in nature. I do love how this poem doesn't take itself seriously, which is something that like I'm still learning how to do in poems. And that's one thing I was drawn to poems that teach me, that teach me again and again, this is another way that we can write poems or approach the work. And I also just love how the speaker seems to be trying to find themselves in the consumerism of Rite Aid. And also I like the comment that you made about how the poem begins and ends, as though it just kind of wants to, it just starts in media res. And a, and a lot of the lines start that way. We open on and, but a bunch of them start with or, so, with, like a lot of those, the, the lines sort of begin with words that propel you forward. It's interesting. It does, it does really focus in on like sort of the consumerism, but, but also the, the speaker keeps coming back to that familiarity. And I've, I've certainly experienced that like in traveling and living in different parts of the U.S. Like every, every Rite Aid looks the same. Every IHOP looks the same. Like there's, there's things that are always dependable no matter where you are. Well, for that to be comforting for, for sort of the like chain conformity to be oddly comforting. Like, I think that's an interesting observation. Yeah. And I think that what you're saying, that comfort allows the speaker to, to ground himself. So I could move to a new state, lose my mind or a lover, then visit any of the 46,000 drugstores and the heel spin on the driveway back home from any mailbox 
as any American boogieing down aisle six under the bars of fluorescence. The sort of the grounding, the grounding begins with the numbers, I think, specifically. Like, I know exactly how many, how many raids are in the country. I know exactly what aisle I can find a specific thing I'm looking for. And it feels as though Rite Aid in that way is the only constant in the universe for the speaker. When we get specific places to Kanye West in a studio, probably not far from a Rite Aid in Los Angeles, um, we get Bugs Bunny talking like he's from New York. We get the beach rocks and agate shaped like Nebraska. Um, we also get Pluto, which I think is really interesting. So I think his creative ways of working in specific locations is really interesting. It does like... It gives us a lot of detail, a lot of like insight into the the speaker's like mental state, but also like really reinforces that sense that this is everywhere. Yeah. And it makes me kind of feel like I also too could be a part of this um, Rite Aid experience. The speaker makes Rite Aid both an ordinary and magical place, but also a place to find solace in. And the solace is knowing that there are so many, you don't have to go too far to find peace. I love this poem very much. I'm grateful that it came into our lap. Yeah, this one certainly stood out. You can find Austin Beaton at austinbeaton.com. So our last poem for today comes to us from Kai River Blevins. Man gets tired of being in the spotlight. Hello, my name is Kai River Blevins, and I'm calling from Salem, Oregon. The title of my piece is Man Gets Tired of Being in the Spotlight After Jackie Germain. Man gets tired of being in the spotlight. Tells me that I've spent enough time antagonizing him, corrupting his divine name, condemning the thinly veiled violence in his bones. He demands that I forgive his unrelenting presence, forbids me from saying all that I've learned about him, like, man is the aftertaste of disgusted stares. Or man comes alive when hardened fist meets pliant ribcage, his laughter exposed by the sudden crack. Or man says my mouth is a broken levee, my voice an unwelcome flood softly wearing down the fang of him. Or I know there is something powerful about queer blood. Why else would man be drawn like a rabid beast to the iron of me? Or man begs silently for the warmth of desire, for open arms, for hands that no longer grasp at his throat. Or man is a leech, a broken mirror, a wounded animal, small and fragile and desperate and defeated. Or man has turned my family against me. Man has turned my family against me. Man has turned my family against me. Or man has turned my family against themselves. Or I was born into the hands of a doctor who sucked woman from my throat, filled my gasping lungs with the drought of man. Or I was born into the hands of a doctor who worshipped man. What chance did I have? Thank you. One of the things that immediately drew me to this poem is the opening. I think it's one of those openings that runs directly from the title into that next moment. Man gets tired of being in the spotlight, tells me I've spent enough time antagonizing him. Um, I think that's a really engaging way to start. And that opening introduces us to, I think, one of the central concerns of the poem is like this commentary on toxic masculinity and how the speaker navigates that. 
The poem negotiates what masculinity is and the ways in which toxic masculinity tries to eliminate anything that doesn't that doesn't neatly fit within its confines. And one of the lines that really justifies that is, or man comes alive when hardened fist meets pliant ribcage, his laughter exposed by the sudden crack. Yeah, that sort of odd joy and destruction. That line stuck with me. Or man says my mouth is a broken levee, my voice an unwelcome flood softly wearing down the fang of him. It makes me feel as though the object is trying to deny its desire for the speaker. Well, and I think that following stanza speaks to that. Or I know there is something powerful about queer blood. Why else would man be drawn like a rabid beast to the iron of me? And I think the syntax of the fang of him and the iron of me sort of like draws the connection between those two stanzas. And I think you're, I think you might be right that that's sort of the, the push and pull of this poem is that the object is drawn to the speaker, but just in these really like repressed and violent ways. And I feel like the, there's a sort of pattern of biblical references in that first stanza we get corrupting his divine name and then later we have hardened fist meets pliant rib cage. And in that next stanza, a flood. Like all of that kind of seems to speak to like a religious tension. When I think especially that repetition of man has turned my family against me, we get that three times and then a standalone line or man has turned my family against themselves. That sort of cyclical problem of like, the self versus the societal problem and then the societal problem within the self. Yeah. It's a very sobering poem. And I think it's also very critical of us to talk about it because as a cis, as a cis person, for me, at least it's important for me to read work from people whose experiences, like I need to understand more so I can understand them more as people and learn the ways in which I can create safe spaces with them. And use what, what privileges I do have to um, yeah, make them feel safe in the world. I'm really glad this one was sent our way. I think it's necessary. And there's just been so much conversation recently, I think, at least in my social media world, about toxic masculinity and the ways those things affect, especially like queer and non-binary communities. So this one felt timely to me in very particular ways. So you can find more from Kai River Blevins at queerislife.wordpress.com. End of messages. Check erased messages. The music featured on this podcast is by True Key. For more, visit soundcloud.com slash truekey. Voicemail Poems is published quarterly. Our next deadline is December 1st. Please check it out as voicemailpoems.org. If you love what you heard on this podcast, please consider being a contributor to our Patreon at patreon.com slash voicemailpoems and reviewing us on iTunes. Thanks to our Patreon supporters, Tyler Byrne, Lena Renierson, and Bree Sparks. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.